from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Catherine Gallagher of the English Department discussing her book, Telling It Like It Wasn't, The Counterfactual Imagination in History and Fiction. She is joined by Thomas LeCur of the History Department. Uh, thank you. So um, in 1994, um, Kathy's book, this one, Nobody's Story, which I'm going to return to in a little bit, uh, won the MLA uh, James Russell Lowell Prize for an outstanding scholarly work um, in literary studies. And just this year, uh, the new book, Telling It Like It Was, got the 2018 um, Jacques Barzun Prize from the American Philosophical Society for this year's best book in cultural history. So um, it's a cultural history, actually, of writing history and of writing fiction and of thinking historically about these, deep, these philosophical problems of necessity uh, and, and, and contingency. I don't think Kathy needs a very big introduction. I think you um, all know her. her. Her first book was the British Industrial Novel and then Practicing New Historicism, and then The Body Economic, and then this one and we edited a book together. It's been a spectacular, important literary career at Berkeley. She was also chair of the English department and a founder representation. She is one of the great and good of campus, as all of you know. Now, before I really enter into a conversation with her and say something about the book, I want to, I want to make a confession. Um, in the late 1990s, uh, Kathy proposed that we teach a seminar on, uh, on counterfactuals. And, um, you know, I would teach anything with Kathy, so I said, sure. But I thought, and I actually said to her, that this was really a snooze of a problem. <laughs> you know, philosophers go endlessly about conditional probabilities. You know, in philosophy one, you learned about Hume's big, uh, big move in defining cause as an object followed by another, where all the objects similar to the first are followed by objects similar to the second. And then the second part of that, which everyone says doesn't follow, where if the first object had not been, the second never had existed. And so the relation between these two phrases is, you know, it's important, but we've done that. And, and, um, and if you actually get into this more technical set of issues about counterfactuals, but what are the conditions of S when conjoined with A implies C, the philosophy goes crazy about this, and then there's possible world semantics, and there's Kripke, and I thought all this stuff should best be left to, um, it's all above our heads, and should be left with the philosophers. And um, there was actually nothing interesting literary to say about this, and the few novels that at that point Kathy had proposed, I didn't think were such great novels. <laughs> so, and I just want to say that I was, um, I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I was totally completely wrong. This book does, what? We have this on we tape. We have tape. I was. I mean, what can I say? Um, it's, it's a spectacularly good book. It's, it's, it's philosophically provocative. It's humane. It's widely learned. I still don't think all the novels she talks about are such great novels, but the, but the book is beautifully written. Um, 
and just as a history of thinking about the issues she's thinking about, it just, it just couldn't be better. So the APS has it right um, in giving her the prize for the best book in, in, in cultural history. So what's this book about? Um, well, she says it's about why we conduct um, counterfactual thought experience. It's not about the philosophical issue. It's about the, the question why we as thinkers um, uh, engage with this question. And she asks it both as a, as a formal question that's important for literary studies and, and as, a, as a historical question. So in other words, she wants to argue that this, this question is not an eternal philosophical question, but a question that itself has a particular history. It begins in the late 17th century. It has particularly literary consequences and, and in, the, in, the, in the 19th and in the 20th century and after the Second World War. So in some sense, it's, it's sort of philosophy becoming, becoming um, history. So um, it, it's, sort of, it's in, it's in um, questions organized in three parts. Um, Sort of, which in some sense of correspond to three genres of, of counterfactuals. Um, one are counter, or analytic, what she calls analytic counterfactuals, which are hist often histories of war, history of cr histories of crisis. Um, these have the roots in in in, in um, philosophical thinking in Leibniz and, and in and in, in Hobbes, but but very particularly in military thinking with results that battles are not the consequence of, of providence necessarily, but of something that some general did or didn't do. And one studies them in order to find out whether this is the, uh, uh, the, 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 optimal, the optimal strategy uh, for winning these wars. The second genre she's interested in is these divergent fictional worlds, that's to say where the world diverges from what actually happened in the world, which has real characters. So in other words, Abraham Lincoln and Gladstone and these characters actually figure. And the third genre, is these alternative histories, which are not just disjunctive histories in the form of the counterfactual, but also then have fictional characters. So it goes in some sense, it's analytic and then narrative in the division, and then the narratives are ones which have a, a more direct connection to the real to the world as it actually happened, and ones which don't have a connection uh, to this world. And but but though these are she makes these distinct, the book actually um, uh, deals with them as a whole. That is what she calls a cultural ecology of counterfactuals, which includes the narrative and the analytic form and the different versions of the, of, of, of the narrative form. So why do we do this? Um, well, she says these forms are all about imagining a past and therefore imagining uh, a, a different, uh, different future. In some cases, and this speaks to Tim's point about, about activism, there's a whole chapter really which looks at counterfactuals as a way of some sense of repairing the past, um, as a way, for example, of affirmative action or of other a a ways of saying, if we had done something different, something would have happened and we could actually, and we could actually fix it. So th th there, there, there are formal concerns I want to come to. There are serious political um, concerns. And, and, and so throughout, there's a there's the, the philosophical concerns. I don't think Kathy would say that she argues these philosophical issues. I mean, she's not in a debate with Kripke or with, with Goodman or with Lewis or these people. But, but, but she takes the kind of claims they make as being important for literary, literary moves that I'm going to talk about in just a second. So how does the book proceed? Well, it starts with actually a history of the analytic mode. And that has Leibniz and, and, and Hume, whom I just mentioned, sort of a kind of important to both of us, actually, you, and then on the, on the Clausewitz and the relationship of this kind of alternative history writing to thinking about, about providentiality. 
um, and possible other possible worlds. And then we move to the narrative, and, and we do a history of those. So those start with a discussion of French earlier 19th century narratives, which are really about what would have what could have happened to have not made these regrettable events in French history happen? And there were a lot of, as Kathy points, a lot of regrettable events, to some people at least, <laughs> in, 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 in the late 18th and the, 19th, in the, in the late um, uh, 19th um, century. And the last point then moves to um, the late 20th, 19th century in, Amer in, 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 um, in America, where this um, regrettable event is not is crucial, but what could have, might have happened still is. And so then, then it's divided into sort of two kinds of national histories. One is the Civil War story, which is why we, she calls it why we lost the Civil War. Um, but it's basically stories about what if the Civil War had turned out different, what might have happened with, especially issues of race and slavery and so forth. And then the, the last two focus on, um, uh, well, then, then, then there's the one I mentioned that's about alternative narratives and, and making, the, making the past right. As she says, novels and shifting legal political landscape, improving the present by changing the past, gave form to elusive hopes, fears, and frustrations. And she resurrects here novels that even the most learned amongst you, I suspect, would not have heard of. Bring Back the Jubilee by Ward Moore. <laughs> Long lost Balzac. Um, and then the last two were about Nazi Britain and what would have happened if, if, um, if the Nazis had won. Now, um, so that's the outline of the book. And you can see it, it, it's, it's very broad. Um, it involves it's, it, it deals with big, important, serious issues and with the, and with the history of thinking about them um, and thinking about the forms they're in. So that's, I think, a fair description of the book. So let me just, I was going to pose three questions or move us into the discussion. First question is actually that um, deals with your relationship to um, the formalist concerns in a, in a historical context. So I thought this book actually has a lot in common with Nobody's Story, where Nobody's Story um, is a book about nobodies, that is to say, authorial personae, and about people who didn't happen. And fictional characters. And fictional characters. Um, on the one hand, and, and um, so it's about the issues of fictionality, which has been central in your thinking. And this book is not, those books are not, quote, counterfactual, but they are, as you say, counterfactual in the sense that they're also about nobodies. So this is a negative in both of these, what didn't happen. So I wonder if you could just, maybe just in terms of thinking how you got into what I thought was originally an implausible topic, and whether <laughs> you see a continuity between this book and the next book. So just can you talk a little about the history of your thinking, about the issues that are... That... Okay. Um, yes, you're definitely right to see a connection between uh, nobodiness and, and wasn'tness. Um, so <laughs> you put it that way. Um, but but what, has, what intrigued me was the question of whether or not what I now call a counterfactual character is also a fictional character. So is that a fiction, you know, is, uh, in the same sense that is, is Napoleon in, in an alternate history narrative fictional in the same way that Anna Karenina is? Is that the same kind of fictionality? 
And you know, in some ways, I've, my argument about the novel has always been that it's not the first recognized fiction, but it's the first form that makes a virtue out of the invention of characters, that is, of identities that did not exist before. That that's what's different about novelistic fictionality, and that's what kind of what's always been at the center of the form. So then, counterfactual characters, counterfactual fictionality seems to go almost in the opposite way. You take an identity and what you do with it is um, tell a different story about it. So the fictionality is all in the, in the fable, it's all on the plot side. But you have to, in some sense, stay true to the, identi to the historical identity that you've chosen. A technical way to say that is the proper name still functions um, in that Kripkin way, to, to, in that Millsian way, to indicate an individual um, in our universe somehow. So that's what really interested me, this kind of almost backwards way in which fiction seemed to be working in counterfactual narratives. And it requires a kind of delicate operation, analytical operation, that I'm certainly not a, a good enough surgeon to, <laughs> to always maintain. And that is a distinction between identity and character. So that identity is, get this from Bernard Williams, who was a, a tremendous influence on the way I think about these things. And what, what Bernard Williams said is that what Kripke has and what Mills had was a, what he called a zygotic idea of identity. It's really more or less the DNA. It's the, it's the genealogical stuff that makes the identity. Um, at, whereas character is something different. Character, as we use that term just normally, but also as we use it um, in uh, literary terms, is something that's in constant interaction with um, conditions and context. So what the counterfactualist does is say to take an identity, say Napoleon, and then start applying different conditions to that identity to see what might emerge in the character, what else might emerge in the character. Because we do use the word character to mean not just what you've done, but what you might do. And so that's part of the argument of the book is that we actually use counterfactuals all the time just to define who we are, just to figure out whether or not we want to lend somebody or whether or not we want to marry somebody or whether or not we want to hire somebody. We're constantly wondering, what's, what's in that person? What's that person capable of? What's in there that maybe hasn't come to the surface yet? So that, I think, is what counterfactualism is centrally about. And we do that with collective entities, too. You know, what, what are we as a people? Obama was constantly telling us, that's not us. That's not who we are. We don't do things like that. Um, and of course, in crisis times, uh, collectivities often have to be kind of vacated of what they've been doing. And a whole lot of new, new virtues and aptitudes and projects have to be added to them. So we're always breaking down national characters. And, building them up again. And, it's, and that's very much what um, counterfactuals, especially about our big national unresolved crises like uh, America's 
um, racial and sectional problems. So who are we as a United States? Which is why most American counterfactual, historical counterfactuals are about the Civil War or about Reconstruction. And I deal with the Civil War and Reconstruction as a, as a, as a complex of, of issues. Um, so constantly sort of breaking it down, what else could have been done? Remember when Donald Trump said, you know, that Civil War thing, that would never have happened on my watch. You know, that would have been so easy to avoid, of course. <laughs> you know, the biggest uh, debate in, in American historiography, as if nobody had ever thought of this before. And for the British, the question is still, at the time I finished the book, I thought it had been settled, but it's not. <laughs> are, the British, are the British European? And the, the, the counterfactual period that, that deals with that most explicitly is really the period um, uh, between May of, of, eight, of 1940 and, um, and the point at which the US entered the war at the end of 41. And so that, and that has to do with the question of whether or not the British are going to be invaded. So the invasion counterfactual is a constant in British collective life. And it played out again on both sides. It always interestingly plays out on both sides of the question of Europeanness. Um, played out on both sides in the, in the debate over Brexit. Uh, so those are the things we continue to think about as nations. We continue to sort of use these things these might have beens to try to figure out who we are, you know what the so that's to the extent that a national character is always a fiction. I think that's certainly true, but it's not a fiction in the same sense that Anna Karenina is a fiction. You know, it's not the same kind of fiction. It's not as if we just sort of invent. You know, we we have a history. We read our history to figure out what else, what we did, and also what else we might have done, as Klaus said, everything that happened and everything that might have happened in order to judge ourselves right. and to ask ourselves about what path we should follow um, in the future. So though, that's the connection between the two. Well, we'll come back to character in a second, but I want to push you a little bit on just on the, Maybe, I don't think the trajectory of your career, but how you sort of really got onto this. Because in the 90s, when you first started thinking about this, counterfactuals were not a big topic in literary studies. I mean, we had this sort of what Ken Sherlock Holmes meet Gladstone kind of yes. issues. Um, but that was a pretty minor subgenre of philosophical and aesthetic thinking. And when I th much of your work grows out of your engagement with sort of major writers. You're interested in Malthus, in particular text. And, Big Dickens text, and this book is about Manly and Afro-Band, I mean, sort of major characters. This, I don't know, is not motivated by your, in, your particular interest in, 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 in um, uh, you know, Moore or these relatively obscure writers. So how did you, I mean, I guess, what, what, what made you have faith in your friends, well, I should just say me, but I don't know what your other friends said, thought this was a just useless... About every historian thought, I talked Yeah, thought this, yeah thought this was a useless... Well, not many literary <laughs> critics could have been keen on this because they wouldn't know what you're talking about. So, you know, I just... You know, so I just want to... What, well, what, I think, what I think made... What is was, it theoretical? Well, partly it's theoretical. So partly it did have to do with, you know, got kind of yeah. constantly worrying the issue of fiction, issues of fictionality and character and fictionality outside the novel and other genres of fictionality. So partly that was it. But the, the thing I think that was really um, 
important in the 1990s also, um, and then again in the early 2000s for slightly different reasons, was the question of temporality and, um, and, and narrative form. That was extremely important at the time. And, and there were a lot of experiments uh, take, try to take in sort of take in the newest discoveries in physics and wondering about backward causality and other kinds of causality and splitting universes and all this sort of right. thing. Um, and I'd always had a kind of um, amateur interest in science fiction, just as I'd always had an, an amateur interest in uh, in a military history. So. In a, in a way, this was kind of just p pulling on adolescent interests of mine that were still hanging around, especially the interest in, in time travel, in backward causality, in plot types. And so, I, so partly it was that. And, the, and I got very, and also in social justice. So the yeah, first thing I wrote on the topic was called Undoing. And it was on the way um, that the movie Back to the Future uh, uses time travel as a way of thinking about racial, class, and uh, ethnic antagonism and repairing uh, injustice in the past. And, and that also connected with the, the, um, with the law, uh, the, 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 the legal justifications that were given for affirmative action, which I was very interested in, which were mainly drawn from tort law. And tort law ways of asking, you know, whether or not if it hadn't been, say, for Plessy versus Ferguson, um, uh, it, it would it, it, of uh, African Americans would have had the difficulty getting into good colleges that they had. So what we do then, so what the Supreme Court should do, because they're after all responsible for Plessy versus Ferguson, is say allow. UC's affirmative action, uh, uh, UC's affirmative action program to stand. That that sort of question, and that's a, that's actually one of the arguments is, that's made in the in the decision that finally comes down. So um, so I was interested in in the odd way in which science fiction and backward time travel and social justice um, were coming together. Right. So and I've always been interested in sort of grabbing things from one part of culture and trying to put them together with something that seems really completely disparate, but is, but is also somehow informed by that. Before we open up, I, I want to just go back to the issues you raised about character, both individual character and national character. So the idea of character that's crucial in the, in the book is that, um, and it's also probably true in life, is that there's, there's this sort of trans-world identity. I mean, Hitler is Hitler in all possible worlds, and Hitler would be Hitler even if Hitler hadn't been born. I mean, a Hitler-esque character does, does the Hitler does the Hitler role. Well, you sort of, um, and then the, of course the issue of these permanently unfinished characters, the JFK who then, you can who dies, and you imagine what would the second term have been like, you sort of imagine how this character would, would exist in a world in which it doesn't exist. So you sort of solve this with a, by claiming, well, there's the Kripkean identity, which is you know, sort of adamic, learn, adamic naming. That is to say, at the beginning of times, Aristotle was named Aristotle, and that's the adamic characterization of him, whatever. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about Hitler and JFK, you're talking about character, not as identity. You're talking about it in a different way, that there's something 
you know, sort of old-fashioned intrinsic about someone, like they have a character. You know, it's almost humanism. <laughs> so, so, so there's that version of what I asked you about character. And the second thing is your just take on national history. So back in the 60s and 70s, national history, national character was big. You know, Ruth Benedict and Margaret Mead and all these people talked about the national character of the Japanese. Remember all these World War II studies that showed... Well, so World War II is, is very big. big. The events and, 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 and one of the interesting things that they, they say the, is, you know, as Margaret Mead says, look, you know... Uh, it, this sounds very old-fashioned, right, right. but you actually have to have this. Well, so, that, so I want to ask you about that, both individually <laughs> and and do, do we do we, are we so just left with the idea of not of identity in a cryptic sense, but there is something just essential. We need character, and counterfactuals gives you a way of thinking about character. We need national character. It's a, it's a, I, I, or it's, you could put it this way: it, we will always do counterfactuals. We'll always wonder what are the potentials of that entity, right? What, what is that thing capable of doing? Whatever it is, right. what is it, what might it do? Right. Um, and the thing we call that is character. I mean, I could have come up with a different Right, but it's term, different in, fiction, in your stuff than in fiction. Anna Karenina can only act in the way Anna Karenina acts, right? That's the interesting thing. See, what the novelist does, what the realist novelist does, usually, is to mime the, those other possibilities um, in the narrative itself, so that the 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 reason Nana Karenina is a is a realist novel is that we can sit around and talk about what else she might have done, and we do <laughs> endlessly. I mean, if you've ever Just talked any novel, Just you know it, that's right? where that's, that's what they are really really interested in. They're interested in why she did what she did. Whereas she might have done something else. And any good realist novel um, will open up all sorts of possibilities and then shut them down. That's kind of the definition of realism, is the sense that is this way in which we are, um, we are led to believe that this nobody, this non-living thing, this product of someone's imagination, has the kind of infinity of possibilities that we ourselves have. And so, yes, it is, the, realist novels are humanistic. But you get a lot of current novels that are doing very different kinds of things that are Kate Atkinson's. Um, I don't know how many people, how many here have read um, Life After Life? I mean, it's great because it takes, it, for my purposes anyway, because it takes that idea of an identity and sends it off in about 11 different directions. I think that's about the number of them. So you, you, know, you pick it up, it starts in the same, the same place and time, and then there's a life, and another life, and another life, and another life, and another life. But nobody would say it, there's this identity and that identity, because it wouldn't work that way. It's got to be a, a fan. It's got to be fanning out okay. from, some, from some moment for that character. So that's another way of doing it. It's just say, realizing each one of the possibilities for that, for that woman and for that country. I mean, as Kate Atkinson said, this is the novel of national character. So she's going through the different possibilities for a woman who's born between the wars. So, um, yeah, so um, it's, uh, it's humanism in the sense that, it's humanism in the sense that, um, in, in either sense, right. that is just the notion that we all have some, that 
you know, I could have been a contender. That that's you know, this is the most that's the most pathetic line in all of American <laughs> film. <laughs> that that we could that we could have been different from what we are, both for good and for bad. This is the pathos of life. This right. is what we have to come to terms with. Right. Only one set of right. of, uh, right. of possibilities well, that's the is going to be realized. becomes the big, the anti-Nietzschean position. But anyway, I want to open. Let's open this up. Uh, yeah. Tim, you want to t take? You want to call people, or shall I do it? Okay, yeah. Just thinking of the well-known distinction among historical characters. For example, Lenin. It said, "Without Lenin, there would have been no Second Russian Revolution." But for other characters, as you can imagine, things would have happened whoever was there, I mean, these event-making exactly. people. But that aside, the question I wanted to ask is really more addressed to Tom within the domain of history. Um, as somebody who's not a historian but has attended uh, some history of science seminars, I can remember being virtually attacked by a graduate student from who's visiting from University of Chicago who said to me, you asked the most, the strangest questions, you know, counterfactual questions. You know, this is outside the realm of the field. The question I had asked was after somebody had made a presentation about a particularly great discovery, the source of the Cretaceous uh, tertiary uh, die-off the dinosaurs, which involved a very big team of scientists here at Berkeley. And I asked, well, what did it require um, on this team? I mean, how many different specialists, you had a geologist, a physicist, and people from various other people involved? And I, I, I thought it was a reasonable question. And she felt it was beyond the pale, the kind of thing historians should not be getting into. Um, so, it, within the field of history, uh, among your students, do you uh, say ban counterfactual questions or approaches? Well, we, we try not to, but we keep them from counterfactuals. That's why I was against this project. But, but the whole book. <laughs> but, but I think the, the argument of this book, well, and it's mainly sort of history, history, yeah, history graduates. The, the argument of the book, and I think what I would address it is that in fact all historical arguments, all arguments about cause, yes. are arguments about this, and we could argue had it not been for Alvarez, or had it yeah. not been for whatever makes it possible to collect all these people. I mean, would, different stories, is that right? I mean, so, yeah, different I mean, stories, and I don't want to make it sound as if because I've been concentrating on character, I've made it sound as though. This book is about character. I mean, this is an argument that runs through the book. The whole first book is but, part about the analytic structures of these kind of historical arguments. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, um, this is not a book that deals with the actions of individuals um, all the time, not by any means. And one of the other points of the book is that counterfactual, the counterfactual characters we choose to look at often have this scaling up possibility. That is, the point is not so much whether or not, you know, what else could have happened while Napoleon was delaying in Moscow after the city was burned down, you know, what he should have done. It's about the history of the French people after he does something different. Right? So that's, it's usually the, the actors in these, narratives are, are very often 
national, big collective actors. So that's the question. That's why the questions of, say, national character keep coming up. Now, an interesting thing about that is that, as, as um, one of my friends who also works on this topic says, once you move from the individual to the collective, you get a much weaker sense of agency. That is, you know, exactly how does the national character come together and do this or that or the other thing? And many of the novels are precisely about that. They are about the, the workings, the finding of the, uh, again, of the national type that usually will repair the damage from the catastrophe that happened because you all got lazy and you know let uh, let and made uh, made a, a dishonorable peace with Germany and now you're really in hot water. So a lot of the novels are precisely about that kind of thing, but they do require collective action. They require the the breaking down of the polity, um, often the destruction of the state, and it's coming together on some newer, more purposeful. Uh, basis. So that's what a lot of these stories are. Um, Roth's Plot Against America is exactly that kind of narrative. Um, and one of the things that it does, of course, is sort of to reconcile you to the state that you have, right? I mean, it's a whole lot better than what you would have had if you had allowed that Nazi takeover or if you hadn't fought the Civil War. And you still have, you know, some. Uh, sort of South Africa-like right. uh, state right. on your border, uh, threatening you with a nuclear war. You know, right. think about what that would be like. So this is the way a lot of them have these kind of slightly um, dystopian, utopian <coughs> kinds of uh, dialectics inside them, and are not actually about, say, Napoleon or right. even. I, just, I mean, it's, I thought I, I tried to make yeah, the point. Right. I think you would say the interesting thing about this book, or the compelling thing about the book, is that while it deals with the the kind of what questions historians should ask, that's it's that's not what it is. It won the prize for the book in cultural history because it actually is a cultural history of thinking this way rather than of the legitimacy of thinking this way. So the British start worrying about this after, this after the war. You know, it's a devastating war, and they think, what would, might have happened had it been different? What kind of people are we? And likewise, America and the civil rights movement. So I just want to emphasize, and likewise, about Clausewitz and Providence. Mm -hmm. It's not that people just come out of nowhere and all of a sudden start dealing with conditional propositions. Right. It's that there's a particular historical moment in which those become exigent, either collectively right or individually. Right. So especially the Leibniz, to, to Clausewitz's part, is a real you know, cultural intellectual history of thinking about how the world might work if every moment isn't predicted by God, or is predicted by God in the Leibniz. Mm -hmm. right? so, so it is a history rather than a, it's a history and literary book, not a philosophical, it's not prescriptive either. Right. So, but the question also was, do you discourage a, a, students in history departments from asking counterfactual questions. Well, I mean, look, I, just briefly, I mean, you, you, you do want students to think about what's remarkable about some event. In other words, it's not, I always think wonder is actually, we, is, is a big part of thinking about history. Why would someone have that position? In some sense, if you have this notion of wonder, it does lead you to ask what produces it, why might it, why what, isn't this ordinary? And that has a counterfactual involved in it, it's just you don't go to the archive and ask a counterfactual question per, it directly. But it's certainly there. 
and it, 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 and if you think about the importance of a scientist, for example, you need to sort of ask, what is it that made possible that discovery then? It's a, it hadn't been thought for a long time. So that, in that sense, um, you know, the counterfactual is the background, but it's not yeah. go to the archive and, and, and prove or investigate a counterfactual. Would be, Martin, do you have a, I mean, that would be my view. So, sir, yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, people want to say that. Yes, we'll go. In the, we'll go back in the order, right? Hello. People want to say who they are. It's just to help people. Where you go. Sure. I'm Veronica Mitnacht. I'm a graduate student in the English department, um, and I was just wondering. I work on on the 19th century, and I was wondering um, what you would make in this sort of cultural history of uh, like the sort of 19th century utopianist. Uh, texts like looking backwards or news from them or even utopia mm -hmm. um, which are not exactly counterfactuals right. but there's a suggestion that we're not on track to achieve those futures right. and then there's a hope that the publication of this text might alter that right. so there's a sort of uh, so uh, you were talking about the idea of um, a purpose of some counterfactuals being to sort of reconcile you to the current status of the world mm -hmm. or status quo uh, and these are texts that sort of do the opposite, where they have a sort of counterfactual quality, but its purpose is actually to sort of challenge your acceptance of the status quo. And I, I guess I'm wondering how that fits into the sort of cultural narrative you Right. I say not all counterfactuals by any means are there to, um, are there to, that are there to, uh, to justify the status quo. So I don't want to leave you with that impression sure, at all. Yeah. Even the dystopian ones very often make connections between the history that might have happened um, and the disasters that might have followed and what we are actually living. So Ward Moore's Bring the Jubilee is actually constantly saying, look, we're living as though the South won the Civil War. It's a big concern of his. It's right at the beginning of the Civil Rights era. So there's the, lots of counterfactual novels are about that. Um, uh, the, uh, especially looking backwards is an important um, is an important novel uh, for utopian, uh, for the more utopian brand. Um, and oddly, the, and embarrassingly, the first uh, counterfactual novel about the Civil War is a slave state utopia. Right. And it starts pretty much the same way. Somebody falls asleep and ends up not in time travel, right. not going forward in time, but somehow skipping into right. another reality and, uh, and finding himself on a plantation in the late 19th century where this um, paternalistic slave utopia has been created. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, that so was 1900 and happily forgotten. 1900 and happily forgotten. I found one review of it. <laughs> the first British um, uh, counterfactual novel is actually a novel of invasion. Oddly enough, it's a novel of, the, of a Napoleonic invasion. Right. And uh, that also is 1900s, exactly. Right. They're, they're, they're right. really twins, right. one about the Civil War, one about the right. invasion. This is, right. These are the right. national preoccupations even before the Second World right. War was fought. Um, and that one is, uh, is, a, is very... Um, is very much based on normal uh, sort of um, Walter Scott style uh, historical novel. That's what it's like. So those are the two forms that you find. They are very much 19th century forms. Right.
But there is news from no. There is a nowhere part, like news from nowhere. There's a sort of not existing. Yes, there version, is that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's uh, right. Sir, maybe you could also say. Thank you very much for this interesting discussion. I'm Roddy Reed, uh, recently retired from UC San Diego, uh, the literature department. Um, I'm fascinated by this interplay that seems to be a particularly intimate relationship between the question of character and the counterfactual mm -hmm. um, in terms of, uh, you know, it's almost an epistemological issue in the sense that allegations about character are difficult to prove and difficult to disprove. It's just, and that's the fascination of character. There's an endless speculation as to what that person was, what that person, as you said, might or character might become, what potentials might be revealed through interactions of, of all different kinds. Um, so that's also something, and I want to bring it to uh, very much our present moment in the sense that that is epistemological uncertainty can be weaponized. Mm -hmm. And I'm not thinking of the last two weeks, I'm thinking actually of George Bush and Saddam Hussein. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Bush's um, you know, uh, claim that there were these weapons of mass destruction. Brian Masumi, who's an a, uh, interesting uh, the, uh, uh, political philosopher in, at the University of Montreal, he has he has something, he has a phrase that is felt counterfactual. He's very much into affect theory. Mm -hmm. And he's very, and, he, and he's actually very much interested in the revolution in military affairs. And that's a whole nother, that's, that's a whole nother development mm -hmm. and a whole nother topic. But what he points out, and I think quite interestingly, and this is, I guess, my question. Um, with Saddam Hussein, you had something of a double conditional. It's not so much that he didn't have weapons of mass destruction. They couldn't prove it. It's had he had them, he would have used them. Mm -hmm. And that can't be disproven. Yeah. And that, it's, an, it's a form of, what, character assassination, if you want? I mean, not that he, you know, he's a pretty vile person, of course. But it was that allegation, that claim that couldn't be disproved, but effectively went to the heart of whoever was receiving this message, worried about uh, a potential threat to you know, the well-being of our nation and so on and so forth. Right. So it's this weaponizing of that epistemological uncertainty yeah. that's very much in that uh, dyad character and counterfactual that I find interesting. And I was just wondering what your thoughts might be about this, that. You know, that, is, that is very interesting. I mean, I, th I think that that's a good example of why it is that we will never stop doing counterfactuals. No? I mean, as long as we are all living, as long as, especially since we live in a democracy, this is precisely the kind, uh, this is the way our political discourse goes. And I, it doesn't seem to me that there's really a, 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 a chance of that ever ending, of it becoming something else. So as much as I think it's important in this day and age to think about the importance of fact and um, to understand when you're using a counterfactual and, and not simply referring to a fact. It, it still doesn't seem to me that it's, we're ever going to be able to say, well, these are the facts and we can draw our conclusions simply on the basis of that. Um, it, it's interesting to me, though, that you say that most people were, or that, that this thinker thinks that most people were more convinced by the idea that because he's Saddam Hussein and is the character he is, he will use them if he has them. 
um, I think most people really felt lied to when they found out that there, that the weapons weren't there. You know, that so was, there's a yeah. That was after, that was, it was over. Yeah. I mean, we were right. Mission, yes, exactly, right? exactly. So it did yeah. Job, yeah. That's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Tim, did you? Interesting. Yeah, Tim, our director. <laughs> so, so I was just, I just wonder if we, you could contextualize a little bit more the kind of historical scope of the project, because it does seem to have to do with a particular modernity. Yes, it does. It has to do with a particular model of historical thinking, yes, a particular does. model of representation, which would be the realist novel. I mean, I was thinking of, when you were talking about character, I was thinking of the, a moment in Brecht's writing on the theater where he says that the actor in the epic theater should, should speak his lines in such a way that we can see all the alternative interpretations right. that he might do. And yeah. so that would be that kind of fragmentation of mm -hmm. character, which mm -hmm. would be the kind of modernist gesture. Yes, it is. And that would be the kind of end of this kind of realism. So it seems to me what you're suggesting is that the kind of political weaponization of counterfactuality is linked to a sort of almost kind of zombie-like vestigiality of a kind of realism that, that continues to haunt us and and dominate us in some kind of way, at least in discourse in the public sphere. Maybe, I mean, I'm just. That's, that's interesting, but it seems to me that actually there's not such a big difference between um, the fragmentation and the notion of character to begin with. I think that what that is is a kind of display of the fact that, that um, that any character has to be, th that a character to seem real to us has to seem uh, partly unrealized, right? That is, that there's gotta be something in that, in what we associate with that proper name that never quite gets to have its, to get out into the sunlight and act out its part. That's the point. And so that's there in the realist novel and then it's very much there in the post, let's call it the post-realist novel, but as the kind of working out of each one of those things, that kind of fragmentation. So that's what interests me, is that in the 19th century, there's a way in which counterfactual narratives <coughs> are already doing that, and that's why they seem kind of weirdly postmodernist. I mean, if you read, and, it, 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 and it's there already in the, um, in the military historians. You know, who will sort of you know, proliferate like five or six different things that could have happened. And they'll go off in this direction and that direction and the other direction. You'll have five things that, that didn't happen and one thing that did happen. And if you don't really know these wars very well to begin with, the side shadowing you know, <laughs> begins to really overshadow the, the actual war. So it's the, that's really a kind of postmodernist technique and you see it very much in Clausewitz, for example. But you also then immediately see it when you get a 600-page story of what Napoleon and the French do after Napoleon marches on Petersburg and, you know, and, and takes, basically takes over the world. So what then happens in a world um, which is uh, French-dominated? And, and at the same time, it's constantly keying you into what's actually going on. To what, oh, sorry, 
to what actually happened in that history and even what's actually going on at the time of the writing. So you're always reading on these two tracks. And all those characters have proper names that refer to people who actually were historical characters. And they all act kind of in character, but in slightly different, but under different circumstances. So you know, I would say that it's already, that realism is already vestigial as soon as you start realizing counterfactual narratives. Well, we'll ask one last question. Thank you for um, the fascinating presentation. My name is Jeff Peer. I'm a visiting researcher from the City University of New York. And one of the things I work on is a similar sort of experiment at the, um, the limits of um, factuality, um, the nonfiction novel. Mm -hmm. And if I can be permitted to ask another question about this distinction between character and identity. Uh, an interesting thing about um, the nonfiction novels um, its authors often sort of disingenuously claim that the characters in their books are exactly the same as the real-life people walking around with the same name. And, and my question is, um, to what degree is the distinction between character and identity, you think, um, a function of genre or a lack of clarity between the genres, between the simplicity of a fictional, non-fictional binary? and the different kinds of fictions. You said um, Anna Karenina is uh, another kind of fiction than a, um, than a um, counterfactual character, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's really, it's such a, that's such a rich topic. And uh, I think that when we say fictional, we often mean fictional characters. That's what we often mean. That is, I think the novel has been, even the realist novel has been, of the the primary instance of fictionality for us. And we haven't really been able to look at fictionality in other kinds of, in other kinds of genres. This is one attempt to do so. Um, I guess I'm relying heavily on the distinction between identity and character here, because I don't know what else to call these things. Um, so I'm not so sure that, I will, um, Identity now has, has now really changed its meaning. I mean, if you have identity theft, it's, it doesn't mean that, you know, that somebody is now... Um, you. You. <laughs> you can't really have character theft in the same way. Um, so there's that. But the problem, one of the problems with using the term is that identity now seems to refer to collective identity. So it's about your ethnicity, and it's about, it's about your race, it's about your nationality. It may even be partly about your, um, your se the, the section of the country that you come from. Whatever you identify with is what we're now calling identity. Right. So that certainly is, that for me, that's an, those are all aspects of character. They have nothing to do with identity, which I am sort of continuing to, to insist in a kind of legalistic way, right? I mean, the police, the last people who want to get rid of the idea of identity and let it just become character. Um, so uh, yeah, so I, I'm not sure it's a, it's a lack of clarity, um, uh, but I do think that when we get into fictions, 
the, the genre you're looking at really relies on the identity character difference, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. But they're not saying that the person in the book is guilty of everything or can be charged with the things. You know, the person in the world is, can be charged with the things that the person in the right. book does, right. right? I mean, they're also not saying that. So often there's just a difference between, again, the plot, um, the component of the book, and the code, the plot code, the events code, and the character code. Right. So it, it's very much like a counterfactual in that sense. Right? But it's different from a counterfactual in the sense that when you read a counterfactual, an alternate history, say, you're constantly reminded of what this person did in the real world. But is it, you're really reading double. And the uh, nonfiction novel doesn't actually do that. It's not, you don't know the biography of the author who was writing in the first person and insisting that, how do you pronounce his name, Nausgaard, you know, and insisting that he is himself. Um, you don't know his biography so well that you're constantly asked to compare. Counterfactuals are always comparative. That's what they're for. They're so that we can compare events that actually happened with events that didn't happen and judge which, is, which would be better. That's what they're for. And that's not really what's going on, it seems to me. Well, we could do um, this but, for, yeah, but, but it does seem to me that this is, the kind of th this is the kind of thing we need to start talking about as literary critics as we try to get a handle on what, what, uh, what, what a huge phenomenon fictionality is at this right. point. So, so listen, <laughs> we should, I just want to urge you all to think more about this. This really is a spectacular book. No kidding. Uh, probably skeptic. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this Berkeley Book Chat, and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in this series.